Welcome to Risk Roundup. Irrespective of private or public, most of the critical infrastructure as seen across nations today has been present in one form or another for quite some time. However, it is only recently that the critical infrastructure has become dependent on information communication and digitization technology. The critical infrastructure across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, today uses many software applications to manage not only client-side business processes, but also to control some very sensitive operational processes and physical functions. The digitalization of critical infrastructure, such as the electric grid, water supply, transportation, financial systems, healthcare, health systems, and emergency services have benefited significantly from greater integration of information communication and digitization technologies, in short referred to as ICDT, to make systems at all levels, local, national, regional, global, more efficient, more resilient, and more reliable. While the integration of ICDT has digitalized and modernized the critical infrastructure, it has also opened itself up to a contested territory as cyberspace is a contested commons and which it is growing increasingly complex and sophisticated, bringing critical security risks to not only the critical infrastructure, but each one of us across nations. These necessitates security of the ICDT-enabled critical infrastructure and its accompanying industrial control systems from cyber criminals and cyber attacks. To discuss this further, I'm honored to welcome Philip Reitinger. Philip is currently the president and CEO of Global Cyber Alliance. He has a very distinguished service record and in some of his prior roles, he has served as Sony Senior Vice President and Global CISO. He has also been appointed by US Department of Homeland Security, Department of uh, Secretary Janet Napolitano to serve as the Deputy Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate and has been the director of the National Cybersecurity Center. Welcome, Philip. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Wonderful. So as the increasing digitization and automation of nation's critical infrastructure provides more cyber access points for cyber criminals to exploit, there is a growing fear of cyber crime and criminal activities that will impact not only cybersecurity, but also geosecurity and space security. The advances in the availability and sophistication of malicious software tools and the fact that each new technology from cyberspace raises new security issues that cannot always be addressed prior to adaptation or adoption in cyberspace, geospace, or space, in short, referred to as CGS, is a cause for great concern and a critical risk facing each individual and entity across NGIOA. So how can any nation secure its infrastructure, critical infrastructure, with the growing digitization and automation challenges in CGS, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space? Well, uh, I'd suggest two things. Uh, first off, there is a need in the long term to simply change the game. Um, as you suggest, and quite rightly so, the risk we are all facing around the globe is soaring upward. And in point of fact, there's really no way to change that. Um, I like to point to what I call the three C's, complexity, um, connectivity, and criticality. So we have more and more devices that run increasingly complicated pieces of code. And as you say, that creates more connections. Um, 
Those devices are all connected to the internet for lots of good reasons. And we depend on this array of devices and the software that those devices run more and more every day, week, month, and year, not only as we used to for entertainment, but for mission critical functions of our lives. Um, all of those things are not going to change. We are going to keep using more complicated software and more devices. They are all going to be connected to the internet and we will depend on them more and more every day. You can say you're going to change them, but you're not. That means our risk is going to continue to go up. And for that, we need to fundamentally change the game. We need to change the underlying structure of the way we do security on the internet. And I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, until we do that, uh, we've got to focus very much not on the big problem, not on you know, the, the issues that we could write about and enjoy producing reports on for years. Uh, we've got to focus on the strategic through the very much the lens of the tactical. And that's what the Global Cyber Alliance is trying to do. We recognize that these trends are not going to change in anywhere in the near future. And so instead of working on reports and recommendations, we try and find areas of systemic risk where there's a solution that isn't being implemented. And instead of thinking about how could one solve this issue, we work to implement the solution and describe the degree to which risk was reduced. So we focus on eradicating risks, starting by mitigating them, and then working towards eradicating them in the long term, the way the medical community has eradicated pathogens like polio. Uh, the other thing that we need to focus on, and we're specifically focused on in the Global Cyber Alliance, is learning much more about how to measure systemic risk. Um, you know, this is called the Risk Roundup. I'm, I'm sure you have listeners and you who are much more familiar with the degree to which we can calculate enterprise risk. We can do it, but it still tends to be something very much of a, you know, a red, green, blue, sort of a traffic light standard. And you can get to numbers, you can get to a five-level standard, but actually trying to get to quantitative dollars remains difficult. We actually want to take it a step farther and work over a course of years, much as we are you know, very much sort of attention deficit disorder focused on specific tactical items in the project space. In the long-term space, we want to instrument a means of measuring systemic risk because it is only when we can actually measure um, and even model in advance what mitigations will be effective that we're going to have a science for reducing risk. And so that's what we're all about. You are absolutely right about that. We don't have at this point effective tools and technology to be able to measure these interconnected and interdependent systemic risks. So I'm glad that you, your organization has taken an initiative to develop such tools, to develop solutions and to implement those solutions. So that is, we do need organizations like yours who are, you know, actively looking towards finding what is missing and what needs to be there and to go ahead and you know provide solutions to all organizations all entities across you know nations government industries organizations and academia and we want that to have effective ability to be able to bring solutions to these very complex risks that we are facing because we cannot stop 
progress and development. Science, progress and development is going to continue. So that means more and more new technology is going to come. It, it could be from uh, Internet of Things, it could be from cyberspace, it could be from uh, artificial intelligence. We just have to understand those technologies. We have to understand what risk it brings to us. And we have to prepare ourselves with effective solutions. So that, that is one of the reasons we started Discrounder, that we want to understand, evaluate all these you know, emerging areas. And we want to uh, create education and awareness for everyone to understand that these complex risks are there. That doesn't mean we have to be afraid of them. We have to put together effective solutions so that we can have the benefits of the technology and the advances and at the same time we can manage our security risk effectively too and that's another area we you know we really like to address is that all these risks are integrated interconnected that means in a nation industries organizations government academia and individuals they're all interconnected now and we need uh, you know effective frameworks we need effective risk management framework so we can identify the connect interdependent risk interconnected risk facing all of us at the same time computer code connected computers and uh, internet has connected the geospace with cyberspace and space so we need to have an integrated approach that connects all of that so i'm glad that your organization is doing what it's doing and we would love to know more about that as we uh, you know continue to talk uh, on risk roundup today so now let let's uh, another area that is that irrespective of digitization Protecting NGIOs, critical infrastructure, has always been one of the primary role of nations. Now, in a digital global age, as nations increasingly become more dependent on digital communication, information, and communication technology networks, they are being increasingly threatened by cyber attacks and cyber warfare. Now, while the nature of the critical infrastructure assets to be defended has undoubtedly changed over the years as we go deeper and deeper into the digital global age, the nature of the security threats has remained essentially the same. So how has protecting critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace, and space changed fundamentally in the digital global age? Well, it's certainly become a lot more complicated. Um, and you, you see this issue coming up all around the globe. Um, certainly, it was foreseen when the Department of Homeland Security was established about 13 years ago in the United States because it was given a cyber role. Um, and notably, when the Department of Homeland Security in the United States um, did its first quadrennial Homeland Security Review, um, it was very interesting that it elevated cyber risk to one of the top five risks that um, infrastructure and you know, the homeland in the United States um, faced. You see it in Europe with the um, completion and moving forward on the NIS directive, the Network and Information Security Directive, which specifically deals with several um, several sectors and the need to protect them and approaches to ensuring that governments can protect infrastructures from cyber attacks. All that said, I don't think anybody's figured out exactly how to do it. Um, you see fits and starts. So it's been the mantra around the globe for a while that we need a public-private partnership. And that's quite certainly true. As you said in your opening comments, the vast majority of critical infrastructure is in private hands around the world. And in um, many of the more industrialized democracies, it's well over 90%. 
Um, so governments are a little bit at sea. Um, it is relatively easy for them to police the borders and to make it more difficult to get bombs into a country and to arrest people in, in the physical world. All those things are much more difficult in the online world. Um, it brings, you know, I used to say that it's kind of hard to do policing in a war zone. And quite arguably, as you suggested before, the entire internet is a war zone. Um, if it's not, the war zone's at your doorstep. Um, and what's the right role of government remains very controversial. Uh, I believe public-private partnerships are essential. That's one of the reasons my organization exists. But it's also the case that I think governments and a lot of private sector companies are increasingly real, making the realization or reaching the realization that public-private partnerships alone won't do what we require. Um, in the United States, for example, there are performance-based regulations for chemical facilities that require uh, meeting certain standards, if you will, high-level performance standards in cybersecurity. Uh, you see that with the NIS directive and um, other approaches in Europe and around the globe. But in the United States, there remains a very strong uh, driver against additional regulatory obligations. Um, I, I think that that is a temporary obstacle. I believe additional regulations will come. Um, there's going to need to be a at least a common lower baseline for the degree of security um, because it, we simply can't continue to live with the environment we have right now. And with the spread of the Internet of Things and more and more use of industrial control systems, again, which you mentioned before, uh, the, the connections between the physical world or the geo world and the online world are um, becoming more and the barrier is disappearing. Um, and when you know, cars start to crash regularly and smart cities are taken offline and emergency services disappear, in some cases not by intentional attack, but by inadvertent um, actions of individuals, uh, people will start to get serious. Um, I think that you know, industrial control systems and the Internet of Things are a great place where we really need to put the thought in right now. Um, I remember when we went through the mobile revolution and people said, let's not relive what happened in desktops. Um, and things are better in some ways, um, but in many ways they're not. In many ways we're repeating in the mobile experience what happened in the desktop experience. Um, I actually believe the transition to the cloud has, has potential significant security advantages by centralizing services and requiring those best capable of providing security to do so. Uh, but the Internet of Things could be a positive trend if it's done the right way, um, but I don't think that's as likely as a significantly negative trend. Um, and it, you will see the broad panoply attacks, not just based on confidentiality, but integrity-based attacks, availability-based attacks, that actually don't attack maybe even individual devices, but affect the entire ecosystem in a way that causes a autoimmune response, if you will, that is negative. So we live in a brave new world. Yes, yes, definitely. And like you said, the public-private 
partnership is essential but i think we there is a need to put structure on that public private partnership just by issuing a guideline that public and private entities need to work together it's not going to happen people are not going to just wake up one day and decide that we need to start working together so there needs to be a structure to how to work together now, while nist national institute of standards and technology they have come up with a good you know first initiative by you know developing the cybersecurity risk management framework there needs it is just a baseline i would say there still needs to be a lot of work that needs to be done because there are fundamental you know gaps in that and uh, i'm sure that you know in the coming months and years we'll see some you know advances uh, or the you know issuance of you know more guidelines to make it better and more effective at this uh, point you know it is just a basic you know guideline and basic standard that uh, each and every entity across organizations need that but when cyber technology has a potential to destroy any nation smart cities its power lines water supplies transportation and energy and financial markets without shooting a single bullet it is a cause of great concern so based on your experience what do you think is the nature of strategic shift we will see in combating the cyber warfare or even to just say in a very basic form to manage the security risk effectively sure so um true risk management is always going to be a domain of humans aided by machines um, it's been my thesis for several years that that's only going to really be possible until a particular thing takes place um, and i think things are going to continue to get worse for at least the next decade um, when i see think we might see trends like this take off um, and that proceeds from the fact that i think that the good guys and women on the internet have one advantage, um, and that is, oddly enough, the size of the network. Um, I said earlier that you know, connectivity and complexity are negative risk trends, and they are, but it is possible to sometimes make the size of the network and the good network effects to be a security advantage. And I don't think that we will succeed, the good men and women will not start to have the upper hand, um, defense will not start to win against offense because right now offense almost always wins until they turn the size of the network to their advantage. Until the internet is transit transformed in a way that lets machines make decisions at a very localized level based on what they observe. And then that data is percolated upward for higher level autonomous decisions. And the network is primarily responsible for defending itself with human correction of mistakes and having humans do the things humans do best, which is set policies, manage for risk, um, watch for Uber trends that machines won't find. Um, and I would tell you, you know, that my thesis for a number of years has been that there are three primary things that need to happen to enable automated machine collective self-defense. And that's greater use of security automation, um, much broader security interoperability, and the use of stronger authentication and identification throughout the network. Um, so that you, know, you can have machines make decisions at internet speed based on real data about, for example, source and destination and what they're observing. Um, and they can spread that and collaborate to implement those decisions in real time. So 
you know, the Department of Homeland Security, when I was uh, the deputy undersecretary there, um, had a paper written about that. Um, that was, I guess, now five years ago. Um, and I haven't been moved off my position on that yet. Um, I just, I don't see any other way it's going to work. And I think that the Internet of Things is going to be a hugely risky expansion of information technology unless we use those devices as a means to help defend the network as privacy sensitive but security platforms that can observe malicious behavior and help the network react more quickly oh that that's great and uh, how can i access that paper the paper that you mentioned about you know writing at Department of Homeland Security. It's published at DHS, it's available online. So if you look for um, uh, toward a healthy cyber ecosystem, I believe it's called, um, enabling distributed, enabling security through automated collective self-defense, something like that. I should know the title off the top of my head, but I've gotten okay. older and I don't remember those as well. Okay, sounds good. Enabling, enabling a healthy cyber ecosystem, DHS, you'll find it. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I would definitely like to read that. Now, the critical infrastructure is global in nature. The global market and global supply chain for information, communication, and digitization technology products and services are all interconnected, interlinked, and you know, interdependent with security efforts requiring a global approach based on NGIO understanding of risk in CGS. Now, when it comes to cybersecurity, NGIOI, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, recognizes that everyone, each NGIOI, are in this fight together with a need to with a need for everyone to set aside their own competitive interest to solve a problem that concerns all. That means the cybersecurity. So do we see necessary initiatives and framework based on the much needed acknowledgement of cybersecurity requirement across across nations, not just here in the United States, but in every nation? Do you see those kind of initiatives developing? There are certainly initiatives around the globe to do things on a country by country and a regional basis. So I think we've seen the European Commission become more and more deeply involved. And there are other regional groups like um, APEC and the Organization for American States that have taken on cyber projects. Um, I think the, the real international effort in this space is not keeping pace with the degree of the threat. Um, there was a, um, a fairly large uh, uptick in activity around the turn of the millennium with the G8 ministers, uh, sorry about the lighting, I'm not sure what's happening. The G8 uh, ministers um, for justice producing a set of recommendations that among other things said um, there should be no safe haven for cybercrime. And then um, also the the development and opening for signature of the Council of Europe Cybercrime Convention, which while it sounds um, very Europe-centric, involved um, Japan, the United States, and Canada in the drafting. So it was more international. Um, but other international instruments have not necessarily kept pace. Um, one example of that, and I think an, an, a place for immediate need, is to do something around cloud data. Um, so there's a num there's litigation around the world, including a rather well-known case in the United States where 
the Department of Justice is suing Microsoft to produce data you may know of um, held on a um, Microsoft server in Ireland. Um, and that's proceeding apace. Those sorts of things are just going to take off. Um, and it's not just people asking for data from the United States. There are, there are data centers everywhere. Um, there are data centers in India. There are data centers in Singapore. There are plenty in Europe. Um, a lot will depend on where inexpensive power is available. And it is beyond question that every government for both law, both um, national security and public safety purposes is going to occasionally need to get access to that data because any investigation and prosecution of crime in the future will shortly involve arguably access to data held outside the country's borders. We have a, a broad structure called MLATs, or Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties, that support that activity now, as well as some entity, some instruments like the Cybercrime Convention. They're not up to the task. They do not support things like going directly to service providers and cabin when that can and when that can't be done, nor do they provide privacy protections for non-nationals when data is stored within a country. And in, a, in order to enable this infrastructure to do everything we need, that's going to be required. So that absolutely has to take place. Um, yes. In terms of, and, you know, I, I haven't seen really any movement forward on that yet. I think, you know, it'll be a 10-year effort for sure, but we ought to get started sooner rather than later. Um, in terms of um, international arrangements, I think I think the council, or sorry, the European Commission is probably doing the leading amount of work right now. Um, the, but I I don't think the the it's I don't think the effort is nearly sufficient to the level of work ahead of us. Right, right. No, you are absolutely right about it. Now, there's also another concern that many nations grid infrastructure is aging beyond its projected life expectancy and there are many reports that if we talk about united states that the projected cost to modernize the grid with the new components to make it you know digitally intelligent digitally you know if secure would exceed almost a trillion dollars so who do you think that that acknowledgement is that, that that we need to go ahead and you know uh, make sure that uh, we take care of our aging infrastructure and who how, do you see any initiatives uh, going forward for that uh no i don't um <laughs> I, mean, I hate to be negative about it but i've seen uh countries not putting their monies where their mouths are for more than a decade um, you know, it is common to have government officials, not only in the United States, but in other countries, talk about cybersecurity as the number one threat that they face. And do we show that in our national spending patterns? Are we spending money um, to secure our digital infrastructures to the extent we're spending money to expand them so that they provide value? We are not. Um, and, you know, I, actually, I, I've, I've said to government officials in more than one country, if you're going to move forward on something cybersecurity related, don't talk to me unless you're talking in the billions. Um, and, you know, we're just not doing that. We're, we're not acting. We are not, our, our, our acts are not matching 
what we're showing, what we're saying aloud about the seriousness of the problem. That is very true. That is very, very true. I mean, you hardly heard about, you know, the mention of cybersecurity, even in our own presidential primaries. So, I mean, that itself shows uh, what our leaders, you know, are thinking about and what they are, what the pri what priorities are them, you know, to them because the cybersecurity or cyberspace or digital global age or uh, artificial intelligence, none of these things we are hearing, you know, and the security is a complex and uh, it's an NGIA challenge now. You know, it's not that you know government will be able to manage security for every one of us. It's an integrated effort that is going to be required in the coming days and months because of the, you know, challenges that uh, changes we are going through in uh, because of the computer code that it's uh, everyone will have to get involved in security of, you know, their respective nations. But we will see, you know, uh, when those changes are acknowledged and when those changes will be implemented. Now, the digital intrusion into the critical infrastructure threatens not only electronic data assets, but as we were we are talking you know that it, it impacts our geospace also and our uh, satellites in space and you know uh, so everything is interconnected cyberspace geospace and space but the interconnectedness and interdependencies are making the job for security professionals very difficult there's a growing concern that we the humans will not be able to manage the security cyber security risk or even the cgs security risk with our human intelligence and efforts, there is going to be a need for non-human, that is artificial intelligence and the machines, as you were just describing, to manage cybersecurity risk or critical infrastructure risk. And how are the nations preparing themselves for these, you know, artificial intelligence involvement in security needs for their nations? I, I think people are just trying to keep their heads above water right now. I'm not so sure that there are, at least I certainly haven't seen, significant efforts devoted to thinking about the long-term trends. Um, I think academics are, um, but you know, you might recall in the United States, the, um, the president's announcement of the CNAP initiative a few months ago um, that involves significant budgetary um, implications in terms of throwing additional money at cybersecurity and proposing new initiatives. And I think most people's view is that for anything outside the administration that the president can do by executive order, it's a dead letter. Um, you know, it's, it's just not likely to drive significant change, particularly during an election year at the end of an administration. And we don't know who the next leader of the country is going to be. Uh, people are occupied with other things. There are certainly things we could be doing. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, know that people have internalized, you know, this brave new world that we are moving towards. It is a wonderful world. You know, I, had a, I did a talk about a year ago about the Internet of Things to a group of very senior people, and I, I, I was talking specifically about the security implications of the Internet of Things and noting that, you know, the, the Internet of Things was, for example, in the future, if you've got a set of um, hearing aids, because when you're older as I am, your hearing starts to decline, um, you, it, they're not going to just, for example, um, automatically adjust to the noisiness of the environment. And they're not going to just be controllable by an app on your smartphone. You know, if you're watching a the television, they're going to hear the soundtrack and be able to pattern match it 
with a known cloud stored uh, broadcast. And you'll, instead of listening to the sound, you'll just get the audio piped directly into your head uh, from the cloud. That's all great, but that means your hearing aids are connected to the world outside. And you know, if somebody takes over those hearing aids, they could deafen you permanently. You're walking around with a permanent wiretap so that anyone can hear anything that you hear. Um, presumably law enforcement in the future, if they want to get a wiretap, are not going to plant a bug. They're going to get a court order to take over your hearing aids. Um, and you know, there'll be targets for lots of other people. Certainly executives would be targets for corporate espionage. And so we're going to live in this world where um, the basic foundations of security that we depend upon that we are you know, inviolate in our homes will disappear because our homes will be smart homes and interconnected. Um, and if we don't address that, um, we are going to continue to move down the road towards, you know, people used to joke about the digital Pearl Harbor, um, which is completely an inappropriate analogy. A much better analogy is that we have to worry about digital Armageddon. Um, and that's a, you know, I think we will be too smart to get there, but we as a human race do not always engage the most in the most intelligent collective decision-making. Um, and now's the time for leaders to step up. You know, the, the data is all there. We, when the, there have been imminent and, and you know, repeated reports about campaigns, political campaigns being compromised, with the most recent one being the Democratic National Committee in the United States. Um, you, the People know that they're targets. I think if you looked anywhere in the world, you would find um, significant politicians at risk towards criminal cyber intrusions um, or intelligence cyber intrusions. So one's got to think about how much more do we need before we start to treat the problem as serious as we as we ought to, and it needs to be there needs to be a focus in academia. There needs to be a focus in civil society, um, and most of all, we need to see governments start to act like they speak. That is very interesting. See, there is also a concern that botnets that are the networks of compromised computers controlled remotely by a cyber attacker. Uh, criminals use that to facilitate online schemes that's to steal the data or to steal funds or like you were just mentioning to, you know, hack into uh, any organization or any politicians, you know, uh, uh, to see their, you know, data to anonymize and to be anonymous and do uh, activities in cyberspace to deny access, uh, you know, like cyber espionage and you know all kinds of things so these botnets are run by criminals and they are used by cyber terrorists or nation states to steal sensitive data and uh, raise funds or limit attribution of cyber attacks all kinds of things are going on now today's botnets are often modular and can add 
or change functionality using internal update mechanism so that is the biggest you know uh, fear that you know the data will be manipulated and we won't even know it because at this point we don't have effective tools to know that our computers are compromised or our smartphones are compromised or our smart watches are compromised you know and that you know uh, the data is being collected data is being manipulated there are no effective tools at this point so how are we going to know that how many computers are you know compromised at this point and uh, you know how to effectively manage the, those kind of risks so i'd say a couple of things about that the first is we do need to get um, much better on the detection and response and um, mitigation in so that we know when something is compromised and we can scalably isolate it and then mitigate the problem with the device. There are lots of technologies that can help you do detection, but it is certainly a smaller entity that was a significant target would have a lot of difficulty in defending itself from the threats that it faces. Um, they could, one could do it with spending a lot of money. There are great companies out there um, that will help you defend yourself. Uh, but uh, it's nothing, we aren't, we aren't in a world where it's more probably than not that you won't be compromised. The best defense right now is not being a target. Uh, and the tack to go to the second part of my response and your point about botnets is that, uh, in a sense, everybody's a target. You know, what's not, if you're a bad actor, to like about a botnet? It is a a broad platform that lets you detect things. It's a broad set of sensors, collect data, and do things, including modifying data or just sending packets, a you know, distributed denial of service attack to take people offline. So it's, it's a grid, it's an electronic grid of computers that lets you strengthen what you can accomplish. Um, the, there are the other place besides detection and mitigation that we need to get much stronger is in prevention. Um, and that's where organizations like mine, the Global Cyber Alliance, come in. Um, we are focused, we were, we were funded by um, a lot of different things, including a significant grant that came from a law enforcement entity, the um, District Attorney of New York County. Uh, but we are focused on prevention of systemic risks. We're not going to, you know, Law enforcement itself has a great deal of difficulties, as I said before, enforcing the law in a war zone. You know, right now, even when you catch people and put them in jail, arguably the economic incentive is still to engage in cybercrime because the chances of their getting caught in this broad um, network are pretty slim. So we've got to make it much harder. We've got to engage in prevention. And what my organization has decided to do is find the most significant systemic risks and try to tackle those. This gets specifically to the botnet question uh, you pointed out because the two main attack vectors you see on the internet right now um, are phishing and compromised websites, you know, watering hole attacks, they're called. Um, we got watering hole attacks in the, you know, the future spectrum to tackle. But our first two projects, and we are very project-based, are to try to implement two solutions to restrict the availability of phishing to attackers. And one is the spreading of a, a protocol called DMARC that makes it much more difficult for 
when entities deploy DMARC to spoof emails so that, you know, if you are in a company, it's a lot harder to get an email that appears to be one of your from your colleagues, but it's not. It's from a third-party attacker. Um, the second is DNS RPC, um, and it's an effort to use a DN the DNS service to stop efforts to compromise machines and then identify compromised machines. Both of these efforts um, could have a significant effect in reducing the ability to assemble botnets and the DNS RPZ project in the ability to take botnets apart. Um, I think we also need to sort of mention a third point. There have been very significant and, and valuable efforts around the takedowns of particular botnets uh, by law enforcement working with uh, the private sector to essentially cut off the botnet at its head, to um, take the command and control infrastructure and repurpose it and help with mitigation. Um, I think we'll see more of that, um, but the threat from botnets isn't going away. Um, and with the Internet of Things, the threat from botnets is going to soar. Um, you know, one could imagine what you could do to an electrical grid with a botnet of smart meters. Um, and that would, that's, that's almost a worst case scenario. And one that is actually within the realm of possibility. Yes, yes it is. And that makes me, you know, come to a point to see, uh, talk about, you know, who is uh, looking after all this security risk in organizations. If you look at currently, we have the title chief security officer, we have the title chief information security officer. So a chief security officer thinks mainly in terms of geosecurity. That means they want to make sure that they have any the enti entity that they are protecting, that they have enough, you know, uh, guards, security guards, or, you know, security weapons that they need, security gates that they need. Chief information security officer thinks in terms of firewalls and antivirus softwares. But there are also many other areas that are largely absent in organization, the titles, the roles. Space security is still a largely absent topic. Not any, nobody is talking about it. And perhaps, you know, not everyone needs to talk about it. There are few, only few organizations that need, needs to actively work towards space security. But this one area that is largely absent and that really concerns me is the strategic security. Because if you look at the, any entity across NGIOA, nobody is talking about that. And strategic security is so very important because right now, because of the cyberspace, the business models are changing, the pro products are changing, the processes are changing, the governance models are changing, the way we do things, you know, the way we bank, the way we manage things, everything is changing. So if you are an organization, a business within an industry or any entity, if you are sitting and thinking that yours is an established business model, mature business model, and you are good to go, you don't have to worry about the innovations or new ideas that are coming in, and that you know this cyberspace is not going to innovations in cyberspace or artificial intelligence or any converging technologies that is coming your way is not going to impact your business model. You don't have to worry about it. So I think they are making a big mistake because of the so many changes are coming at such a rapid pace. Artificial intelligence and biotechnology, you know, cyber technologies, and uh, from any part in the world, 
there are so many new ideas and innovations are coming and it's not necessary that those new ideas innovations would come from within your sector it could come from any sector any industry any country so how are you going to protect your business or your venture your initiative if you don't know what threats are coming your way and that only could be done by understanding the strategic security risk but you don't see that role across you know any entity and in, uh, in uh, any nation they are not taking it seriously so how would we be able to bring real security cyber security see the what i was coming you know in my previous roundups i had dialogue with several you know uh, key decision makers that you know nist you know has come up with the cyber security risk management framework and they talk only about information security information security is not cyber security if we look at the risk portfolio of any organization 75% is the you know strategic security risk the ones that we are paying attention to operational risk financial risk legal risk compliance risk that makes up only about 25% the rest is 75% is the strategic security risk that is ignored nobody is paying attention to so how are we going to make sure that we protect our initiatives our organizations our businesses our products services or the way we do things in our country in our nation how would we protect them from the cyber security risk what are your thoughts do you see any initiative um i think if i had the answer to that question i'd be far more affluent and probably not working for a living uh, i see some things there are there are some some high general answers um, which don't go completely to what you address with strategic security risk. Um, you see this in the debate for to whom should the chief information security officers report? Um, because there's sort of a, there's a, a split between people who think that person should report to the CIO and people who think that person should report somewhere else. Um, I'm a big proponent and I think the general trend in industry is to have a chief risk management officer. Um, and the CISO should not be in the IT chain of command, but should be in the risk management chain of command, where physical risk and other risks should also be addressed. That doesn't answer your question about how do you take that into account, but it does give the mission to an organization to be able to look at the full panoply of risks an enterprise faces and be able to address them. Um, certainly for strategic risk, insofar as it hits business risk, the only way you're gonna address that is actually building it into the DNA of the organization. So product planners and other people address this, those set of risks when they are designing what's going, what the business is going to do in the future. Um, I might suggest that it feels to me like we're gonna see more and more threat modeling Going forward, threat modeling being something that came out of a number of places, but including information security and product development. And I think threat modeling is going to be a mechanism that much more broadly is used in overall business processes to figure out how one designs a business plan to address the various risks that may face and you build in at the start uh, mitigations for whatever might come about. Uh, you see this uh, a little bit at the, at the national level in terms of how to organize. Um, it's been my view for a while that um, 
the Department of Homeland Security, for example, in the United States, should keep physical infrastructure protection and cyber infrastructure protection together so that the entire question of infrastructure project infrastructure protection can be dealt with in a in a threat agnostic way in a mechanism agnostic way um, but um, I don't know that that's going to be the long-term solution that is going to be the result um, I we, we struggle I think with very we struggle very much with models for how to do the very complex, and I do mean complex, not complicated, risk calculations um, that are involved in that question. You know, we're going to focus in, in the, even in the long term, on only the very limited question of how to measure systemic cyber risk, something that, to my mind, nobody knows how to do right now. Um, so... I guess I'm punting on the answer. I don't really think that there is an answer. I do think we've got to work on really building ways to measure risk. I'm going to tackle with blinders on the the piece that I can make an effect on. Other people need to tackle the piece, the other pieces, and we do need. It will need a lot of academic work on how to roll this all up into measurement of overall risk. I mean, right now we can want to throw Watson, you know, the IBM computer at the problem and try and address it in a single case but i don't i don't really have an answer for you other than that i i, I understand that and you know not i i think nobody has a proper answer for that because at this point like you said and uh, like i've discussed before with uh, some economists on risk conduct that we don't have effective mo models by which we would know what is the economic impact of the cyber security or cyber hacks or cyber breaches you know that uh, any particular nation or any business and industry is going through we just don't have those tools so whatever numbers we are seeing you know that this much impact is there on the gdp this kind of cyber security risk it is all not very accurate so without having effective tools uh, we are not going to be able to know what is the true impact and a lot of people are saying that you know unless the uh, impact is certain uh, percentage to the GDP. The you know nations are not going to take it seriously. They would just take it casually that this is the cost of doing business in cyberspace. So let's not worry about it. But at this point, my concern is that there are many many computers that are hacked or compromised. We don't even know which computers are compromised. We don't know what intellectual property is stolen. We don't know what trade secrets are stolen. There are a lot of things we don't know. There are many many unknowns. So how do we you know come up with sensible solutions? when there is so much secrecy there is so much you know information that is in you know silos there is not in enough you know collective information and cybercrime is such a rapidly growing industry today cyber criminals are so business savvy and they have made cyber crimes as one of the fastest growing industry in nation's history the investment that is required in this to uh, you know grow your business in cyber crimes is so little and the rewards are huge. So this 
criminals are building businesses based on the development management and sale of botnets and there are they have very structured you know uh, development centers with their own programmers their own sales people and their own leasing sales uh, those kind of services and so many young people are getting drawn to that that is such a cause of concern when many young people are getting drawn to this rapidly growing criminal industry so how could any nation succeed in reversing the course for its youth? Because they, the lines between right and wrong have blurred so significantly. That's a, that's a very good point. Um, as I suggested before, I think there are some things that need to happen. You know, one is that we need to work on the overall paradigm, as I said. We need to work on a fundamental shift so that the Internet can be secure. Um, uh, someone I know used to say that you know they to defend a network you need to have an, a defendable network that is adequately defended and most of our networks right now are not defendable um, on the adequately defended part we've got to work on the personnel uh, piece we've got to get more people until we have a fundamentally more secure network so that there are more cybersecurity workers to do the human intensive job that will be required until we build out better automated tools and ways to address the problem. And then specifically to what you were just discussing, uh, we've got to make sure we get to young people early. You know, there are, um, I think it is sad but true that there are people who would um, break into a computer system to see what that was there, where they would never think about picking up a baseball bat and hitting someone over the head. Um, and the fact that the harm could be just as great doesn't really occur to them. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of gateway ways to get into that, and I don't want to argue one way or the other about you know things like the theft of intellectual property and you know free music and movies. But there's no there's no sharp dividing line online about what's okay and what's not, and. As a result of that, it can be more difficult to teach ethics and explain ethics to people. But I think it's absolutely essential to start training kids early in cyber ethics. Um, you know, our, our current younger generation was raised in a way that I was not. You know, I was, I was a very cyber savvy kid. I got into programming well before I went to college when I was in high school and I took courses and I did I programmed with punch cards when punch cards weren't cool. Um, but my, my youth was very different than kids now. They communicate in different ways. They have different ethics. Their sense of privacy with Facebook, and not with Facebook, sorry, that's an old fogey technology these days, but with Snapchat um, and Instagram is very different than what I have, and perhaps you as well. Um, the, I, again, I don't have an answer for it other than you, know, it really does require national programs and international understandings. It might be, um, a naive and silly thing to say, but, you know, it seems to me that, you know, cyber safety is sort of a UN level issue in the sense that we need to reach people around the globe and we need to give, you know, this is less true in developed countries, but in lesser developed countries, we need to make sure that the really 
technology-capable kids there have opportunities to succeed outside of criminal activity. Um, because if there's not a real business climate in a country, but, you know, you know computers well, your choice may be to, you know, earn nothing or earn a significant amount in a quasi-criminal activity. And we just shouldn't. I mean, that's, that's a, viola a violation of a basic human right. I think, to ask people to make that decision. And so we've got to do better. Yes, yes, we do need to get, do better in that area. Now, you have, uh, Phil, worked in uh, cybersecurity, several different, you know, angles from uh, Homeland Security to, you know, working at Sony to Microsoft. Many, many organizations you have worked. What is your, based on your experience uh, with different roles that you had over the years, and working so closely with the you know security challenges coming from the cyberspace and because of information communication and digitization technology what is your biggest takeaway from your years of effort towards securing critical uh, it could be critical initiatives it could be critical businesses or critical infrastructure um i so that this is going to be a reference back to the organization i'm in right now um my biggest takeaway is that the most important thing in cybersecurity is to do something. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what the something is. People need to worry about making a change in the things that they can control, um, which is why the, the mission statement of the Global Cyber Alliance is do something, measure it. So, we're a nonprofit focused specifically around finding things that need to get done and trying to do them. But that shouldn't just be a mission statement for us. It should be a mission statement for everything. Um, I think, and I've said this before, um, I think the person who first taught me that was Scott Charney, who is sort of the chief security officer for Microsoft. Before that, he he's my boss at Microsoft, and he was also my boss at the Department of Justice when I was in the computer crime and intellectual property section. You know, that was very much his view. Find something and get it done. And I think you know, that's really the big takeaway. Don't admire the problem. Don't get lost in the complexity. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about how we don't have these models and all this other stuff. So then develop a model. Um, implement a model. Install a firewall. Um, teach your kids. Just do something. And it's better to fail. Let's use a startup ideology. If it fails, if it doesn't do what you want, do something else. But try every day or week to get something done. That's my biggest takeaway. And I, you know, look, I can tell you, I think I've, you know, I, I there have been a lot of places I wish I would have done better. I've worked on awareness raising in several government roles. Um, and I have manifestly not put a delta on the awareness problem yet. Um, and now I don't know if that's my incapabilities or the problem or a combination of the two, but you know, I, I feel good about the efforts I've made and I want everybody to try to do the same sort of thing. You know, it's, <laughs> I like to that's, reference, do you know that's the, very good advice. very good advice, Phil. Do you know the, the Theodore Roosevelt man in the arena speech? I, it it was a college graduation. Um, and it, it, I mean, the, I won't, I wish I had it in front of me. I've, I've, I've read it to so many people. But the, the theme of it is that, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's the person who is in the arena every day 
sweating and toiling, who fails again and again, and who at the end of the day may know great triumphs, but even if they fail, doesn't know, you know, the cold quiet of the, you know, the subtle critic. Um, and that's, 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 I think, what people need to do. They need to get in and mix it up. Yes, very, very true, very good advice. And that is just not uh, important to identify the gaps, but it's also very, very important to identify to come up with effective solutions and to manage, uh, to come up with products, services that we need. Uh, if we talk about cybersecurity challenges, that we it's important to identify the security risk as we are identifying right now. But that is only the first step. We do need to identify, come up with you know effective solutions, effective models, products, services that we require to you know manage the risk coming from cyberspace and integrated risk coming from cyberspace, geospace, and space. So Phil, thank you so much. Your uh, I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. It was a great dialogue and I know you are such a busy man and in spite of uh, your busy schedule, you agreed to come on Risk Roundup and spend uh, almost an hour. I think we are uh, off by a few minutes, but uh, you spent that time and you took a very active interest in uh, coming up with solutions, coming up, talking about your organization and your initiatives, what you're trying to do towards making a difference in the cybersecurity risk that we all are facing. So thank you so much for that. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Wonderful, Phil. So the increased integration of information, communications, and digitization technology into the daily activities of nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, that is NGIOAI, along with the corresponding growth of cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short, referred to CGS, has been a major driver of economic growth and productivity. But just as cyberspace has created unprecedented opportunities for economic growth. It has also created unprecedented opportunities for security risk. How effectively NGIOAI work together toward the common goal of securing cyberspace, geospace, and space will ultimately determine how secure each one of us will be and the degree to which society continues to reap the benefits of living in the digital global age. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIO in CGS and discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also the coming technological superconversion. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos, or hear the risk roundup podcast, Please go to riskgroupalacy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.